Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So last night, if you were here at the end of the show last night, we were talking to Eric Tuck, who is the guy who represents the HSR Employees Union, because of a report that came out from the city suggesting the city, when the LRT gets going, should not operate it. They should go get a third party, contract it out, get someone else to do it. And you could imagine if you weren't here, you could guess what Eric had to say. I don't think it's unpredictable. He even admitted that his position was probably very predictable. Well, around the same time, or at least earlier in the day, I saw a tweet that a Toronto councillor was asking to delegate to Hamilton City Council about the LRT. This is a Toronto councillor who has had some experience in his ward with LRT, with the Eglinton Crosstown LRT, which as many of you know, if you've been paying attention, has not exactly gone swimmingly. Uh, This councillor's name is Josh Matlow, joins us now. Josh, thanks for doing this today. Scott, uh, thanks for having me uh, on your show. It is unusual. You're more than welcome. I'm more than happy to have you here. Uh, It is rather unusual, I think, for a councillor from one city to say, hey, I want to come and talk to councillors from another city. Why? Uh, I I expect it is unusual. Um, But the reason that I I, I feel responsibility to lend my voice to um, having the HSR operate the new LRT for Hamilton is because um, I have lived through the promise of P3s, uh, so is the community that I represent. Let me just uh, jump in for a sec. What's a P3, just for those who don't know? Yeah, sorry about that. So it's a private-public partnership. Essentially, it's contracting out, whether it be the construction side or the operation side. So, um, you know, over the past 10 years on Eglinton, um, here in Midtown Toronto, we've had an experience where there has been very little uh, accountability, transparency um, with a private consortium that's been constructing this project. The private-public partnership was promised, contra- contracting out essentially the services, was promised to be something that would avoid delays, avoid cost overruns. The exact opposite has happened. And remember, I, I was open to any option that would get the thing done on time, within budget, uh, this shouldn't be an ideological debate, but it turned out to be quite the opposite of what was promised. And my concern for Hamiltonians is that you you and your neighbors have a historic opportunity to have an LRT that will be essentially like the subway is in Toronto. It'll be the transit spine of Hamilton. Uh, it'll connect uh, so many uh, you know existing surface uh, bus routes. And um, to to consider going... Allowing Metrolinx, which again is not accountable to you, it's accountable to the province, to then go contract it out to a private company or consortium that will operate the line is bonkers because A, it won't be integrated with the existing system, but your councillors, those who you elect in your communities, when things do go wrong, when there are issues to deal with, when you do need better service, when mistakes are made and you need to hold somebody to account, they literally, legally, will not be answerable to you and those you represent. So I'm essentially going to Hamilton City Council to give um, my colleagues in Hamilton a a warning that um, if you go down the path of supporting a, a private outside company running your transit system, which really should be a municipal transit system, um, you're going to you're going to live to regret it, and ultimately your public will be uh, won't be served as well as they could have been if you could actually hold those who operate the transit system to account the way that uh, we do in Toronto. We will be on the Eglinton line whenever it, whenever it actually is completed, uh, and I and I want the I want the very best for Hamiltonians to be able to have a great transit system too. I want to get to two different I things because there's that. there's two elements of this. And let me go first to the one you haven't been talking about so much, at least not with Hamilton and not what you were going to talk about. What advice, if any, would you give about the construction phase of LRT before we get to who should operate it? Because as I say, you've you've been through it. What would you warn Hamilton about having lived this life for now as many years as you have? Well, for those of us who uh, live in Midtown Toronto along Eglinton, we will all remember that 
the Crosstown LRT um, was promised originally to be up and running by 2020. It's, it's now, it's now uh, several years later. It's also had huge cost overruns. And even the contractor, the consortium, uh, Crosslinks, that, uh, was, uh, that has been working for Metrolinks to construct the project, there have been so many issues between Metrolinks and their own contractors that Crosslinks has sued Metrolinks several times, <clears throat> and in each case, won. Um, so it has been a nightmare. I mean, the, the transit has been the dream, but the experience has been a nightmare. We've seen stores along Eglinton uh, close their doors. We've seen traffic chaos, uh, horrible congestion in the neighborhoods adjacent to Eglinton. And it comes down to accountability. Whenever these problems have arisen, uh, when local councillors will go to Metrolinks or go to Crosslinks <clears throat> and say, excuse me, and say, here are the issues, uh, you know, these, these shops, like they're, they're struggling to remain open, they're losing their life savings, these communities need your support. Metrolinks and Crosslinks are not accountable to City Hall, either in Toronto or in Hamilton. They answer to the province, and the province has not been accountable on this either, any government that's been in power. So ultimately, through the construction process, even though P3, as I mentioned earlier, the private-public partnership contracting out the construction and design limits, was promised to essentially be an insurance policy for the public. In other words, any cost overruns, you know, any, any delays, all that stuff, that would be somebody else's problem, not the public's. But it ended up being the public's. And in fact, we've paid more money and we've lost more years waiting for better transit. So that's the construction experience. And that's why, you know, leading toward who's going to operate it, we arranged that the TTC, our HSR, would operate the Eglinton Crosstown moving forward because we want an integrated system. We want accountability. Today, for example, I was sitting, I'm a commissioner on the TTC along with being a city councillor. There were delays on a transit project in the Scarborough area of our city. I was able to sit at a table at Toronto City Hall, hold the staff to account, ask difficult questions, and work my, with my colleagues to move motions to correct things, to make things better. Your Hamilton City Councillors will not have that ability to hold uh, the system to account on behalf of the public if not only is it Metrolinx is one layer of of, 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 of non-accountability, but ultimately it'll be their contractor. In other words, the public will be left out in the cold. The, the operating side is the other factor here, and um, you've certainly touched on it. The, I think the concern a lot of people have in this area is a um, number of months ago, we learned that in your city that the operating costs were going to be uh, like $106 million a year. And that was on the, um, the Finch West line. Mm -hmm. And when you figure out by kilometer, how much that works out to, it's like extraordinarily more than what we've been told operating here is going to cost, which made a lot of people go, oh, I don't think we're getting a real answer for what it's really going to cost Hamilton. We're getting lowballed and we're going to get a big surprise if we, if going with a private contractor or even a private public partnership would bring our operating costs way, way down. Is it worth that risk? So um, there's two things to consider on that question. First of all, is, is the cost, whatever it might be, worth the, the removal of the direct line of accountability of your local elect elected representatives to be able to have oversight over the operations of your transit system that should be integrated with all the surface routes that will connect with the LRT. That's a reasonable question to ask. Are you willing to just forego that uh, ability to have that oversight and accountability and in integrated operations? Second of all, when it comes to actually the dollar amount, let's test it. I mean, ultimately, um, uh, like I said earlier, the, the public-private partnership model, the P3 for construction, on Eglinton, was promised to be this, this just this wonderful utopian answer to all of our problems. 
that all the liability, all the costs, any overruns would be the responsibility of the private uh, company. Ultimately, the public budget ended up ballooning over another billion dollars. And the delays have impacted the, the daily lives of Toronto residents. So, in fact, it didn't really save money. It certainly impacted our quality of life. And, uh, you know, the third, the third thing I'd add is let's just test that. I mean, ultimately, uh, what Hamilton Council will, will have to consider is not just simply is, is it going to go to HSR or would they prefer Metrolinx uh, go, go private? The question is, will HSR be given the opportunity to have the first bid? In other words, let them demonstrate they can do it in a, in a cost-effective way that, uh, that provides the reliable service that Hamiltonians would expect and give them that opportunity. Um, I think it's worth it. And ultimately, even if the cost might be a little more to go public, the public accountability that will come with that is worth, is worth a lot more in the long run. I've got to let you go. When uh, Do you have a date yet to delegate for the city in Hamilton? Yeah. Yeah, I'm coming on Monday oh, to, uh, to to uh, to speak to uh, the Hamilton Council at uh, some sometime around one o'clock, I believe. We will be watching very very closely because again, uh, those people, as I say, like yourself, we never even got to Ottawa, but that's okay. We don't need to talk about <laughs> Ottawa. Uh, th- those who have been through this, um, as I said a few moments ago, we live in fear of that happening. And so any, any advice that uh, will keep us from getting there, I think we're all very eager to listen to. Uh, Josh Matlow, Councillor from the City of Toronto, thank you so much for the time today. My, my pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I read this story yesterday, I guess, that the Canadian taxpayers are now paying more than they ever have before to keep MPs safe, members of parliament, uh, RCMP and other security services, the amount that we are paying for security is much, much higher than it's been before. Back in 2018, 19, before COVID, it was about 1.6 million. Now it's all, it's getting close to 2.6 million. And that's not counting the prime minister. He's in a whole different stratosphere. Uh, that's almost $15 million a year just for he and his family. So what is going on that all of a sudden we have to pay this much more? Is it just inflation or is something else happening? Phil Gursky is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's a former CSIS analyst. Joins us now. Phil, how are you tonight? Uh, good, Scott, but I'm still trying to deal with a Top Gun theme in, <laughs> on bagpipes. <laughs> I can't get the image out of my head. You'll be humming that one all night, I am sure. <laughs> Uh, look, th- th- there is the obvious thing where you say, okay, everything is more expensive these days, so no doubt that m- security is going to be included in that. Everybody gets a raise. But the amount that this has gone up would certainly suggest that there's a lot more to this. It would. Now, you know, when we talk about the security of Parliament Hill, the MPs and their staff, that is that should be, um, and I stress should be, in response to intelligence that CSIS and or the RCMP have information suggesting there are real threats out there that need to be, uh, you know, um, defended against. Um, yeah, a lot has changed, but in all honesty, Scott, I've, I've been in this part of the country, just in Ottawa for more than four decades. And if anything, we were too lax on security decades ago. I mean, you could just basically you know walk around anywhere on Parliament Hill. Um, in the aftermath of the 2014 attack, you remember that when uh, Nathan Srilla was killed by a cowardly ISIS yep. guy and then the guy stormed center block. You're now seeing the parliamentary police carrying weapons, which they didn't, didn't used to before that. So a lot has changed. Um, but again, I'm hoping that this increase in security at least reflects what our security services are advising is not some kind of government decision to spend money for no good reason. Well, it see, I don't know the answer to that. It seems as though one of the driving forces behind this is a sense that parliamentarians are facing more anger and more potential threats than from the public. And, you know, is, is that enough? Is, is anger from the public enough to say, well, you know what, you need more security because people are angrier at you? couple things. The biggest problem with that, and I'll go back to my CSIS days with the investigations we were involved in, 
You know, we had a pretty low threshold, uh, reasonable grounds to suspect a threat to national security due investigation. But we found that the vast majority of people that we looked into under our mandate were useless wankers. That's the official term we used, um, <laughs> who never who never did anything. But you did your due diligence to see if it was something there. Um, yeah, there's a lot of hate out there. But again, most hate doesn't doesn't turn into something. The other thing that's, I think it's changed, Scott, over the past couple of years is the nature of the potential threat. So when I was at CSIS, it was kind of all jihadis all the time. And the guy that stormed parliament was a, j- a jihadi, okay, the guy that killed Nathan Cirillo. Then we got the so-called rise of the far right. We got the Freedom Convoy, which we could talk about forever about that one. Um, and the latest thing I would say is the the conflict in Gaza. And I've been talking to people on the Hill about this. And there's concern that MPs might be targeted depending on how they vote on, let's say, a ceasefire in Gaza, support for Israel, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that you hope that the, the threat posture and the money being spent to protect MPs and Hill staff would be in conjunction with an understanding of how that threat posture has changed. So I'm going to give the government a bit of credit on this one. Um, If they listen to intelligence, which they don't always, and that they're doing it properly, and that the increase in costs do reflect an increased concern that violence is potential. Again, I stress potential, not necessarily going to happen. How do you, though, if you're doing that, how do you agree upon what is a threat? And let me ask that because that sounds like a silly question, but let me put it this way. There are those who point to the convoy and say it was a bunch of people honking horns, but there was no threat. There are other people who say, yeah, they were people honking horns, but there was great threats. How do we agree upon what is a real threat or not? Well, you let the professional decide. So the CSIS director publicly stated, and I semi quote, we looked at these useless wankers, again, the official CSIS term, for the convoy, and they didn't pose a threat to national security. They were rude. Um, they urinated into the street. They probably you know, gave people the one-finger salute here and there, but they did not. And they investigated these guys up to yin-yang. They did not pose a national security threat. So if CSIS says they weren't a threat, then, I mean, who else are you going to believe? You're going to ask the average citizen in the street who's pissed off at honking horns or, you know, um, stuff coming out of the tailpipe of, of trucks? No, you want you want people who are paid to understand this this these potential threats to weigh in on this. So, um, yeah, you listen to CSIS. You don't listen to the guy in the street. You don't listen to politicians who want to make something sound like a threat for other potential political reasons. Except, Phil, and I agree with you, except that if you are what you're describing, if you're CSIS or if you're one of these agents and you say, I don't really believe it's a threat, all you need is one mistake. All you need is one. And then all of a sudden you, as the person who made that analysis is not only dead wrong, but you have cost someone their life. So isn't it just safer to say, let's just blanket everybody because everybody gets an angry email at one time or another. Let's blanket everybody and to heck with the cost. And therefore we don't have to deal with the fallout. Okay. Two things. First of all, you're absolutely right. The The phrase I like to use, Scott, is you're only as good as your last failure. Nobody gives a rat's hindquarters if you get it right. But if you get it wrong, and as you said, someone gets hurt or heaven forbid killed, everyone points fingers in your direction and says, why didn't you know? Why didn't you stop it? The problem, as I alluded to earlier, is that there simply aren't enough resources or money to deal with all the wankers out there who are hateful online. And again, uh, based on my experience, you know, it costs you nothing to put something on Facebook or WhatsApp or God knows whatever platform you use saying, I hate MP so-and-so. And, you know, 99.9% of those people uh, are cowardly and or incompetent and don't have two neurons to rub together <laughs> and don't pose a threat. But they might get lucky sometimes. Look at that guy that just um, went into City Hall in Edmonton. Now, it's not, not a lot known about him just yet, but that's the kind of threat we're worried about. Do we want to hunker down and, and put oppressive security everywhere? I don't think so. But your, your phrase, what you said is absolutely, I think it's apt, is that, you know, can you take the risk that you're going to be wrong? And... Um, it's called risk assessment for a reason, Scott. It's not an exact science. You do the best job you can, and you never claim perfection. You never claim you're going to, you're going to you know you'll solve everyone. It's like cops don't prevent every crime, but they prevent a lot of crimes. I guess it's that the bottom line is what are Canadians willing to put up with in that regard. There's one other element to this that I, I think kind of gets lost in this. We we point at the public as the cause and the effect. Um, today there was a 
group of four or five liberal MPs who were speaking, saying, you know, yesterday's meeting with Tucker Carlson in, in Edmonton is leading to hate. It's putting them at risk. So the conservatives are evil and they are putting us at risk. If they do not decry this, if Pierre Polyev doesn't say this is dead wrong, our lives are at risk. And then the conservatives would say, well, the liberals have certainly, by comparing us to Trump or doing these other things, they have fired up their defenders and made us look like the evil ones. The politicians who are the ones saying we're not safe here, I don't know that they're entirely innocent in making these threats exaggerated, are they? 100%. I mean, surprise, surprise, politician from party A accuses politician of party B of doing the wrong thing. Gee, where have you heard that one before? No, I think there is a responsibility. And again, I go back to my earlier statement is that when you're talking about threats, don't make stuff up, rely on the organizations that are, that are there to do it. Now, am I a Tucker Carlson fan? No. But does Tucker Carlson pose a threat to Canada? I don't think so. Do Tucker Carlson's fans pose a threat to Canada? I don't think so. But down the line, if you know a guy that once watched a Tucker Carlson post decides to do something dumb, is it because he was allowed into Canada and, you know, the conservatives shouldn't have sponsored it? No, of course not. I, again, it goes back to my earlier point, Scott, that you can't control for everything. And I think, you know, we are a free and open society. And certainly the, the, the most recent ruling on the illegal use of the Emergencies Act to stop the Freedom Convoy pointed that out. I think that Canadians have to accept a certain amount of risk. Um, the vast majority of plots will be detected before they actually ensue and no one gets hurt. But when we run down this rabbit hole of, well, you know, you said this and he said this, and therefore this is a threat to my, my personal safety. Um, no, look, I worked in security intelligence for 32 years and it ceases for 15. And you just realize that um, threats aren't as big as people think they are. Doesn't mean they're not there, but I think we need to sort of, you know, all just take a happy pill and, um, be pretty pretty confident that overall we're going to be a safe society and not feed that rhetoric that we're all at risk out of a, of a possible attack at some point. Uh, that is Phil Gursky. He is president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and he is a former CSIS agent. Phil, really appreciate you doing this. Thank you. Anytime, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a study that came out very recently, uh, it was written about in the Hamilton Spectator, it was written about a lot of places that ties into, it's perfect timing really for what's going on in this city because we and a lot of other cities are in the middle of budget deliberations right now. And one of the things that's on the agenda always in municipal budget deliberations is how much do we spend on policing? Here in the city of Hamilton, this year, the discussion right now, the, the police department is looking for roughly a 7.2% increase. Uh, every year, the amount goes up somewhat. But the question is, uh, and it always is, how much should we increase police funding? And does this make a big difference? Well, as I say, this study came out and it suggests that there may not be, or in fact, isn't really a direct connection between how much we spend on policing and what the results of that are. Melanie Seabrook is the lead author on the study. She's a researcher at the Upstream Lab at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. Joins us now, Melanie. Thank you for this. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get into where this comes from. This has been, uh, I think, uh, policing is always one of the biggest talking points, one of the biggest debate points, probably on any city's budget process. It certainly is in Hamilton. So how mm -hmm. do you get into this? Is is that where this started from? What launched you into deciding, I'm going to look and see if there's a correlation? Yeah, that's a good question. So our research lab focuses on um, examining the different factors that impact uh, people's health. And so what's keeping people healthy? Um, what's causing them to get sick? And so how we spend our public resources is a really important factor to determining people's health. Um, so spending on, you know, various programs like long-term care, housing, public health, but also on policing and, you know, how we keep our, our community safe. So that's kind of why we got into this um, issue. Um, and we, when we started looking into it, we found that there's actually not very much research on police funding in Canada. Um, and so with this study, we really just aimed to kind of get a better better understanding of how much is being spent on policing. How has that changed over time? How does that vary across the country? Um, and then also we wanted to see if it was 
is um, associated at all with uh, outcomes in crime rates. Fair to say that almost every city, almost every year in Canada increases police funding? Fair to say. Yes, that's correct. Um, We didn't see uh, any significant reductions in uh, police budgets over the 10 years that we looked at between 2010 and 2020. And I don't know how you can find this because you're mostly, I'm guessing, looking at numbers, but was there Mm -hmm. any way to determine if the belief existed that more money equals more results? I mean, there's the logical leap of conclusion that that's the case, but were there people saying this or was it just assumed that that's the case? Yeah, I think that... Um, that's just kind of the common narrative around this issue. You know, we see in the news people, um, you know, calling for more policing in response to incidents that are happening locally. So I think that is quite a common uh, assumption that people have and that is made by uh, decision makers as well sometimes. Um, But with this study, we really, we didn't want to come with, you know, too many assumptions about the relationship. So we, uh, yeah, we, we really let the data speak for itself. All right. And what did that data say? Yeah. So we calculated the correlation between spending on police services and crime rates. And what we found is that, um, overall there's no consistent correlation between the two, right? So what that means is we saw a a lot of variation in the correlations, um, across the, the 20 municipalities, um, and most of them were not significant, like they weren't statistically significant correlations. Um, and the types of correlations also were, were very, were varied, right? So we had some positive correlations, some negative correlations. And again, most of them were not statistically significant. Are we talking in this about all crimes or all calls for service or a certain type mm-hmm. of crime? How do we, because I mean, it, it's, it's, there are many, many things a police department would do. I mean, getting a cat down from a tree up to, you know, someone who's a homicide that's called in. How do you, where is that line? Yeah. So for this study specifically, we actually only looked at one measure, which was the crime severity index. So this is a reported measure um, by municipalities to Statistics Canada um, uh, that is standardized across Canada. And it measures both the amount of crimes and the severity of those crimes. And it turns that into a measure that we can use for statistical analyses, right? Um, So yeah, you're right that it doesn't capture all police, all of the current police functions, but it does look at kind of the uh, volume and severity of crimes. And the other thing, of course, that it wouldn't capture is perception of whether or not crime is growing in a city or not. This is just based on the numbers. Right, because that that's, that's obviously going to factor into a lot of people's views on this. If people believe that crime is taking over everywhere, they mm-hmm. are going, you know, they're going to want more money spent on policing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you look, um, kind of over the past few decades, you know, at, at other studies that have um, recorded crime rates, actually, crimes overall have gone down since the '90s. Right, there is a huge crime drop in Canada. Um, since the 90s so why um, do you know yeah so that's uh, one study reported that uh, you know comparing various different factors uh, found that um, employment opportunities and employment rates were uh, probably a a pretty significant factor in driving down crime rates Um, also just changing demographics and um, uh, education opportunities as well and that study found in their analysis that those types of factors were more influential than, um, or likely more influential than, uh, you know, police services in in reducing crime rates in Canada. So your study found, and correct me if I say anything wrong here, but that police budgets yeah. went up pretty consistently, but the the downward trend in crime severity index it went down sometimes but it didn't go down sometimes as well, or didn't align with how much of the spending there was. It didn't line up perfectly. Correct. And so that varies a lot by city, right? So, you know, there were a couple of cities where the trends lined up a little bit more. There were some where the trends were completely opposite. So, um, yeah, and and really we, 
we didn't see a consistent pattern across Canada. Is there anything in those cities where it either lined up or went opposite that you could see even anecdotally and say, well, it makes sense then because this city has this or doesn't have this. Is there any explanation for that? Mm, I, yeah, unfortunately I can't really extrapolate from that because we didn't do that type of kind of political analysis within this study. Um, But I think, yeah, like, like you're saying, this very variability that we're seeing in the trends across Canada really points to local factors having a big influence on determining both uh, police budgets. So, you know, what local decision makers are taking into account when they're deciding on how much funding to allocate to police um, and then also determining crime rates and, and what's driving crime in, in a local municipality. Overall, when you look at, because this was a 10 year study, I think when you look at year one and year 10, Police spending is up across the board over those 10 years from day one to the end. Is crime down or is crime up? Uh, Crime has kind of been uh, had there. There isn't really a uniform trend across the 20 cities. And again, we're only looking at 10 years here. Um, There does seem to be a bit of a, a dip between 2010 to 2015. And then, um, with crime rates starting to rise again a little bit since uh, 2015, but it's really hard to tell with you know such a short time span uh, from 2015 to now uh, whether that's uh, a strong trend. And again, that's you know stronger in some municipalities than others. A lot of the crime rates have been uh, more or less uh, stable or, or downward trend. You're a scientist, you're you're a researcher, you've been doing this to draw an answer, to get an answer, but do you take a position then on the idea when someone calls up and says, uh, okay, Melanie, um, you're saying that police spending does not correlate with crime going down, are you then saying police should not spend more or cities should not spend more on police? Do Do you make that leap to make that conclusion? So I, I personally uh, am not taking a position on this. As a researcher, I want to stay objective, of course. And my uh, goal with this study was really to, to shed more light on how what police spending looks like um, and you know how that relates to crime rates. And I think the results of this study can start to challenge those common assumptions um, that people hold uh, towards that relationship. Um, but really what I'm hoping with this study is that people try and consider more of the evidence and the research out there um, when they're making these types of uh, political decisions and, and um, you know, influencing uh, uh, planning for, mm. for municipal services. Mm. I don't know if you answered this already, but did any of the cities that you studied ever reduce for even one year? Did any of them at any point reduce police funding? So in single years, there have been reductions in police spending, but um, all of those reductions were kind of overcompensated for by larger increases, either in the previous year or the following year. I will note, though, the one city where we do see, like after adjusting for inflation and um, per capita, um, so per person, we do see a bit of a reduction in police spending in Montreal since about 2014. Okay. And and has that correlated with uh, uh, more crime, less crime, the same crime? What's... because And, and the reason I so asked... Montreal... Me, me, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. And then I'll get to the other point. Go ahead. Sure. I'll just finish the thought by saying that uh, Montreal's crime rate has kind of stabilized since 2014 as well. And again, the reason I ask is because this is a Canadian study in the States. There have been a Mm -hmm. number of cities, particularly in the wake of the George Floyd situation, there have been a number of cities that said, you know what, we've got to, they use the word defund or unfund or reduce funding, whatever of police. Mm -hmm. And many of those cities, a number of them did them. Portland did it. Minneapolis did it. Los Angeles, I think did it. There's a bunch. And many of those cities that then didn't not increase, but actually took money away from the police are now... Mm -hmm trying to catch up and are dumping way more money into police because adding more may not have reduced crime, but taking away money from the police has seen a surge in crime. 
You understand what mm-hmm. I'm saying? So it's a, like it's you, you yeah. may not no, necessarily really important point. You may, yeah, sure. you may not necessarily cut out crime yeah. by spending more, but you may see a whole lot more of it if you don't spend on it. Mm-hmm. And that's not something we've been able to look at with this study because there haven't been any reductions in police budgets over the time period, um, you know, in, in gross police budget budgets. Um, and, but I think that also points to, you know, you can't only cut funding. You also have to reallocate that funding to services that are going to help prevent crime. Right. So I think there's a lot of experts pointing to uh, or, or um, making recommendations around the types of services that can help um, uh, prevent crime in, in a region as well. So, yeah, but that's uh, the, an interesting point. Well, right. and again, it's just, it's because the, the I, I certainly understand what your, what your study has found. And I know that I've heard a number of people then saying, well, we should be cutting. And I just, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like you, you find this sweet spot. And then if you add more, maybe you don't get the, bang that you're hoping for your buck but if you take it away boy you're going to get a bang for your buck but in the wrong way it seems anecdotally anyway Mm, i think we don't have enough evidence to be able to say that in canada yet um so yeah i i mean i think we need to see what communities want and what communities need in terms of uh the services that that uh, they want to prioritize and the services that they you would like to see uh, promoting community safety in, in their own region. Um, and, and really this should be a, like a collaborative process that's based in, in the evidence as well. One more thing before I let you go, and I really appreciate you doing this. And I don't know that this yeah. answer can be answered. Money that goes to a police budget goes to a number of different things. One of them is salary increases often. Others are programming. Mm-hmm. Is there any way, do we know if more money is put into programming as opposed to just bumping salaries, does that have any different impact? That's again, a really good question. And I really wish there was more research on this type of question in Canada in terms of, um, you know, outcomes of, uh, of police funding and police investments and specific um, functions. But yeah, I think um, since this is related to your question, uh, one big challenge that we had with our study was accessing data um, on police uh, expenditures. And I know that uh, in terms of police budget breakdowns, that's also an area where we've we've seen challenges in, in accessing data. So I, I would say that, you know, if, if uh, municipalities and, and police services make that data more available to both the public for transparency and to researchers to be able to do that type of analysis, that would be really interesting. That is Melanie Seabrook. She is a lead. She's a lead author on this study, a researcher, the up, a researcher at the Upstream Lab, St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. If you want to read more about this, by the way, it's at the, the stories on the spec. Dot com. Does more money for police translate to lower crime rates? Uh, you can go read it there if you want. Melanie, thank you for doing this. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. On Robbie Burns Day, hence the bagpipes, though I'm sure my next guest, that's kind of the entry music he would usually get. When Sean Majumder walks into a room, Canadian comedy legend, I am sure that the bagpipes start up, they start trilling and welcoming him onto the stage. Sean, am I correct? Is that sort of the usual? You know what? It's more fiddle. <laughs> I go with more fiddle. I know Robbie Burns probably played fiddle as well, but I uh, I prefer the fiddle over the bags. And not that I have anything against the bags. I love the bags. They get me fired up. They always get me fired up, no matter where I am, what I'm doing. Uh, but the fiddle gets me really jumping, you know? Uh, well, there you go. So Sean Majumder, who I, I think everybody probably knows, he is, uh, you may know him from this hour as 22 minutes. There's a billion and a half things that he has done. Uh, a resident uh, native of Burlington, though a different Burlington, not from here, uh, but a guy who is going to be hosting the Canadian Comedy Hall of Fame, the opening night and the finale gala. Uh, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate you jumping on board. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited about this. This is like, uh, this is uh, the thing of legends, and I can't believe I'm, I'm I'm actually a part of it, especially this year with the with the individuals who are being inducted. It's just uh, kind of mind-blowing, you know, like the people that are going to be, um, you know, re- honored and uh, immortalized. 
it, it's um, a yeah, it's know, a they're, they're legends. Well, and it's a great class around here. This is being held, of course, in Hamilton, and Eugene Levy, who's going in from Hamilton, Martin Short going in from Hamilton, Jim Carrey going in from Burlington, from Aldershot, uh, some of the other guys from SCTV, Dave Thomas from Dundas from this area. I mean, this is like, oh, Steve Smith, of course, Red Green. What is it? I don't know, what Billy Van. that region? Billy Van, who did Hilarious House of Frightenstein here at CHCH. Yeah, yeah. well, I was going to ask you that. What is it, Sean? I don't know. And I've been to the hammer a bunch. I love the hammer. The hammer's got some soul um, and it's got some grit. And, you know, it may be like Newfoundland and Labrador, where I come from, where adversity forces the human brain to uh, survive using humor. So uh, I'm not sure if that was it. Very blue collar, rough and tumble, like uh, as a kid growing up being an Argos fan. It was always uh, nerve-wracking to know when Hamilton's coming to town because uh, there might be a fist fight somewhere, and uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> you know it just makes you it just makes you uh, have to use humor to get by, and I feel like that's a big part of it, you know. Not just uh, a fist fight down to earth. Not just a fist yeah, fight, Sean. A few few years ago on Labor Day, after the game, Toronto versus Hamilton, I can't remember which fan it was against which, but one of them bit the other one's ear off. So you know, it gets it gets yeah. nasty. It gets uh, you know it gets. But this, you, you, you mentioned the grit though. And, and I do wonder about that because even though every one of the people that I listed, their style is different, their background is different. There has to be something that leads them to be great at what they do in the world of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's the whole thing of starting from the bottom, you know, mm. in a way in Canada. When you think about the the industry back in the day when when all of that incredibly talented, creative group of people that were getting together, um, you know, with SCTV and they were writing sketches. I mean, it all came from down on Lombard Street, down on, you know, with Second City um, before it ever went to uh, Chicago or even Edmonton. And they were just funny people making each other laugh. John Candy like the whole crew were just doing it for the love of the game. And they were also, um, you know, probably doing their own costumes, doing their own, like the, the, the life of a theater actor in Canada growing up <laughs> is not easy. And so you, you, you just have to, to do it for the right reasons. And I think there's something in that. The same thing with Jim Carrey, the same thing with, with all the inductees, you know, they come from that kind of, there's no polish. It just is pure funny. And uh, even Joanne De- Joanna Downey and Steve yeah. Smith, like they're all from that that same place. So it's it's it makes sense to me, you know. And I, I think it's a Canadian thing as well. I don't think it's just the Hammer, even though the Hammer is a good representation of Canada. Um, I think across the board, uh, Canada has that in it, you know. Other than Jim Carrey on that list too, uh, as you were mentioning this, it was dawning on me because, you know, SCTV and Red Green Show and Hilarious House of Frightenstein, there was something that came across as, and I mean this in a, in a loving way, low budget about all of those. These were not like big budget Saturday Night Live kind of things. It, you're right. It almost looked like they were spending the night before the show, putting it all together. Yeah. Yeah. And what does that say? It says like the writing has got to deliver. The performances have got to deliver. Um, You know, it's not about the fancy shots. I mean, think about, um, you know, just even hilarious house of Frightenstein and think about how much, uh, and I don't know for sure. I can't speak to it. I have no knowledge, but how many magic mushrooms were eaten uh, to conceive of some of the things on that show, dude, like, like just Igor alone, like the kind of character that Igor was, all of the characters that Billy Graham played, like, dude, and no, you know, no guts, no, it was on like CHCH, right? Like it was Channel 11 in Ontario, and that was it. I don't know, like, who saw it. I know that it became legend over time, um, but uh, it's just incredible to to think about the, the amount of creativity that went into that. And it wasn't, it wasn't like they were like, there was some studio executive saying, you know, we need this demographic. They were just like, no, we have a room, we have some cameras, we're just going to make a TV show and see how it goes. What would we're going to do it our way. What would be the demographic for Hilarious House of Frightenstein? 
<laughs> yeah, was it a kid show? It was a kid show because I watched it and I loved it, but it wasn't a kid show. Now it, that holds up. Like you watch, um, you know, you watch The Wolfman now, and I'm just like, dude, I love that character. And uh, and and the professor. I know that wasn't Billy Van, but just it was all conceived of, uh, you yeah. know, with the with the professor. Like he was doing real <laughs> physics, and it was like an actual science thing. Like it was a re- but he was a bit spooky at the same time. All of it was just incredible. I actually showed my daughter the hilarious House of Frankenstein. She's four, and she's sitting right next to me right now. And uh, yeah, it holds up across all ages, you know. Um, so, so there's something so beautiful about that. And, yeah. Uh, I'm glad it's being honored the way that it is. Well, and yeah, we had, uh, so there's one survivor from the cast member, Mitch Markowitz, who was, uh, the guy who played super guy and he was on the show a while back and he was telling the story and it's still one of my favorites from the Hamilton area. Cause you got to picture this area when they're filming this with Vincent Price and all the rest. And uh, Fishka Rays, and I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. He played Igor, as you described, was best friends, oh I guess, with Guy Big who was the little, you know, the little person, and yeah. they would drive around in one of their Volkswagen bugs with the car, like, almost tipping onto a side. And, and you could just imagine them getting out downtown when the two of them unload out of this car. It's just, it's, it's, it, what's the word? It's, why was it, where was the spinoff? Like, that exactly. is whole series, like, their home life. <laughs> I want to follow it, them, it, and I want to go home with them, and I wish that they, I would make them roommates, and it would be an amazing show. But think about the impact that it did have, you know. I mean, people talk about it all the time, um, you know, in the comedy circles. But anybody who has seen the show, um, they're always like, what was that? Mm -hmm. What am I watching? And I love that. And the same with SCTV. um, You know, the same thing with Codco back in the day in Canada. And that that all plays into... (laughs) Um, the originality of the voices that we're honoring in this this event. It's going to be so much fun, and I'm just so thankful. And then we also have, like, the amazing Elvira Kurt, and we've got, you know, we've got Sterling coming. We've got Blue Rodeo, for gosh sake. Jim, Jim Cuddy, by the way, uh, we have some beefs with each other that we may be bringing out during the show. All I right. don't know. I'm trying to track down some old photos. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, it's, you got to come and check it out. Yeah. You'll Brand- see what's going on there. Brantford guy just up the road from here as well. Um, yeah, yeah. so, so, I mean, as I say, you're a guy who has worked in the Canadian comedy industry for a long, long time now. And, and I wonder how much when, you know, when you look at SCTV, you look at Hilarious House of Friends, you look at Jim Carrey, is it something that you look at those guys and you're inspired or do you have to almost say, all right, they've done that. I cannot do anything even remotely similar or else everyone's going to know that that's them. No, no, no. They were the absolute inspiration. Like for me, Growing up, I mean, I, I, I really, it, w- it would be the greatest thing ever if I could go and find the, the, um, the little cassette tapes when I was probably, honestly, seven or eight years old. Me and my cousin Ruben, we would do the press, press record, what was it, play and record at the same time. And we would do Bob and Doug. And we recorded <laughs> so much of us doing Bob and Doug when we were little tiny kids. That was a dirty show, uh, according to my mom. Like, I wasn't allowed to watch it, uh, SCTV. So I would sneak up uh, while she was watching it in my little tiny trailer in Newfoundland, and we would, I, would, I would watch it, and she, I would get busted because I'd be laughing so hard, you know, at the man with the snake on his face or, or just uh, Earl Cannonbear and, like, all of the characters that were on that show. I actually... I realize now how much of an idiot I must have been, but when I was going to Clarkson Secondary School, um, I would do rallies. We would do rallies. I was a part of the student council, and I would be Ed Grimley for all of these <laughs> these rallies, and I would be running around like a total idiot. Um, I would do the hair, and I'd do the, oh, my God, I must say, and I would go crazy doing it all the time because these were heroes. And I've had so many beautiful experiences in, you know, meeting these guys. I mean, I remember I did this movie called The Ladies' Man, and Eugene Levy was in it. And I remember walking on set, and there he was. And I was like, I lost my breath. And then, uh, But one of the greatest stories I think I have about Martin Short was, you know, as I got more and more, uh, you know, I did very well over the years. And, and I remember I was hired to do this corporate event, and it was uh, up at Canada's Wonderland. And I found out that uh, Martin Short was going to be 
performing and he was hired to do this morning thing for this corporate event, these, these salespeople. And we started the thing and I went out and I did my stand up, and then I brought the legend Martin short on and he's sitting down, he's doing kind of a Jiminy click thing. And right as he starts singing his first song, uh, the park opened up and the, this roller coaster went down and it was like, <laughs> ah, and they were screaming and yelling over his song. And he was like, he literally looked at me and afterwards he was like, well, it's come to this. This is my life now. <laughs> you know what I mean? It is the air was, force base during spinal tap. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was hilarious. Was, it was there so ever great. but every time I've met him and worked with him, he's been nothing but uh, a blessing, you know. We got to go in just a second. I do have to ask. So, so this is uh, later this month, as I say. It's it, it's all in Hamilton's. People can go online and find tickets. CanadianComedyHall.com. Uh, tickets for the opening yeah. night gala, the uh, Comedy Hall of Fame, with uh, as we say, with Red Green, Steve Smith going in, with Billy Van. Yeah. Uh, He's passed away, unfortunately, but going in and then the festival finale gala with all the rest. You, uh, you're hosting that last night and I don't know if Eugene Levy and Martin Short and SCTV, all the guys and Jim Carrey, uh, and Joanne Downey are going to be there, but how, how does a guy like you prepare? You got to be great if they're in the audience. How how do you, how do you host a show with those guys there and not sort of have knock knees? No, I don't. I, I'm just so excited to be to be a part of it. Like, I'm just not gonna. I'm not gonna also try to pretend to be something uh, that I'm not. Uh, you know, other than a giant fan. <laughs> you know, it's gonna be hard to to not just be blathering over how incredibly uh, honored I am to be in their presence. If they are coming, I don't know who's coming and who's not. Um, you know, uh, but there'll be a whole lot of praise, a whole lot of laughing. And also, too, we're not going to take it so seriously. Mm. You know, I think it's important to remember that this is comedy, uh, and these are people who have made a career out of uh, being foolish, and uh, we're going to honor that, and we're going to be foolish, and we're going to have fun, and uh, we're, we're going to have lots of laughs, and it's, it's going to be really, really great to be a part of. So, so get your tickets if you don't already, and it's a whole week of, of, uh, of comedy and shows, so... So definitely come out. It's going to be a blast. I cannot wait to get to the hammer in the end of February. What a better time to be there. Absolutely. And, and look, they, no better choice. Uh, great that they chose someone Canadian to do this, to host it, and great that it's you. Uh, listen, looking forward to seeing you doing it. Sean Majumder, thanks for the time today. Hey, thanks so much. We'll see you next month. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.